0: Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Jessica Donati, who's a reporter covering foreign affairs for the Wall Street Journal. Jessica's job aligns well with her innate desire to seek the truth and understanding and to tell stories that need to be told, no matter where the job takes her. Specifically, Jessica went from being in the newsroom doing economic reporting to war reporting in some of the world's most dangerous regions. She talks about her time spent in Libya during the fall and death of Gaddafi, and her latest assignment in Afghanistan, which is where she collected material and stories for her latest book, Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. This book is about the realities on the ground for the U.S. Special Forces in Afghanistan. She wrote this book by being embedded with the U.S. Special Forces, one of the most secretive groups in America's military in one of the most dangerous countries in the world. This book is the first of its kind, so make sure to check it out via the show notes. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. And as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcast. So without further delay, I bring you Jessica Donati. Jessica Donati, welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
1: Thank you very much. I am very well. Thank you.
0: It's wonderful to have you here, Jessica. I know you just launched a book that I'd like to get into, but the way I like to start my conversations is by asking you, in your own words, how would you define who you are?
1: I think I am a curious person. I've always been guided by curiosity and a desire to understand more about the world, to try and understand perspectives that are very different to mine. And I tried to do the right thing, I suppose, is pretty the best way I would put it.
0: Mm-hmm. Right now, you're a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in terms of what you do as, a, uh, as your career and your job. So help us understand how your background and your childhood and your upbringing has informed what you just described for us in terms of who you are and the type of person you want to be in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I grew up in Italy. Uh, it's a country where uh people of all ages uh get involved in politics or they're interested in politics. I would go out with my friends in high school, and we would talk about political theory, religion, all the things that uh that often kids, I guess, don't talk about maybe in the uh, in the states or in the UK. My mom was always very politically active, not necessarily with views that I um, agreed with, but she was always, we were raised to be interested in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose that led me to choose uh, or seek a career in journalism. I think I was really lucky to have a chance to do journalism because it is a really difficult job to get into.
0: Mm -hmm. And what's curious about your line of work is not only you're a journalist, but you're a journalist in the most dangerous places in the world. Mm-hmm. Right,
1: well, that was an accident, yeah, well,
0: tell us about it. how did that <laughs> tell us about it. how did that happen?
1: I did a year at a journalism school, um, not a very uh, well known one, and uh, the journalists there that wanted to go and cover wars I thought were crazy. My background was in economics at university because my father did not believe that journalism was a real degree, and so I ended up at Reuters doing quite dry financial journalism. When the war in Libya broke out, being Italian put me in a good position to figure out what was going on. I could speak to Italian oil companies. It was a big oil war. And uh, that sort of launched my opportunity when Reuters said, you know, would you like to go to Libya and actually see the places, the people that you've been writing about from afar, from an oil perspective, because I was writing about which oil companies were doing deals with Gaddafi, circumventing sanctions, that sort of thing. And so I said yes. It was like a blue pill, red pill moment that if I did it, my life would change. And, and I guess I often wonder what my life would have been like if I hadn't, mm-hmm. uh, hadn't chosen to go.
0: That's curious. Now help us understand in that moment when you decided to take advantage of this opportunity, how did you kind of know that this decision was right? What was showing up for you? What was informing this decision?
1: I mean, it just seemed to me that I couldn't say no. I wanted to see things for myself. Um, I had no idea what I was getting into. And when I went there, um, it took several days to get into Libya because the country had collapsed. Gaddafi was fighting for his life. He was inserted. Uh, Tripoli had just collapsed. Um, The rebels were controlling the border. So we drove in through Tunisia. And uh, it was scary the first few days. You know, I wasn't used to having guns pointed in my face. You know, a lot of Libyans, they looked like kids. They would have these big AKs. You'd get stopped. There would be... You go out into the main square and people would be shooting uh, celebratory gunfire, you know. So for someone who had never really been in that environment, um, it was quite frightening the first few days. What was surprising was how quickly uh, I got used to it. Uh, You know, after a few days, I didn't feel as scared anymore.
0: Now, was it in Libya where you experienced your first conflict? Were you there during the fall of Gaddafi? Help us understand how that kind of uh, that situation played out for you.
1: Mm -hmm. I I arrived in Libya uh, when I eventually got to Tripoli. It was a few days after uh, Tripoli had fallen. And um, yeah, it was the beginning. And I stayed there until uh, Gaddafi was killed. Uh, Sometime after that, I went to uh, Misrata, where his body was kept in a freezer. And I saw the Libyan families queue up to see his frozen body, because I guess they couldn't believe that he was really dead. And we saw, you know... um, kids, sort of little kids waiting to go inside and see this very grisly sight. And uh, and, and that was um, instructive.
0: Were you able to see Gaddafi's body?
1: I did not go in. And uh, it's something that I regretted for years later, because everybody asked me, did you go see his body? and uh, i didn't because at the time i felt that it wasn't i wasn't the reporter that was writing specifically about that and um it didn't seem necessary to me to see that additional gore i suppose and um i stayed on the outside watching i don't know why i did but i guess i regretted it afterwards
0: yeah yeah but nonetheless you were you were able to see the ways in which people change from the moment they went in to the moment they came out like you were able to see the change in which people kind of felt after seeing his body correct
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that people going in were jittery and fidgety and you know going out left with a sense of peace perhaps what was apparent then was that everybody who had uh, lived under gaddafi had suffered in some way everybody had lost a uncle, a brother, some relative who had spent time in the prisons, who had escaped. People in Libya had really suffered and lived in fear for a long time. And there was a really brief moment when Gaddafi was killed, when there was enormous hope for how things would go. People would come to you in the streets and say, you know, do you want to hear my story? You know, little kids, older people. There was this hope, and being a young, naive uh, reporter at the time, I felt quite carried away by this, and I was sort of supportive of the aid that the West had given to the rebels. It was, I mean, the the West did step in and save them from being crushed. Um, Obviously, to the older correspondents who had covered more than one conflict, they were much more realistic about how it would turn out my more senior Reuters colleagues um, ended up writing a story about how all of these different um, groups now were likely to turn on each other. And of course, that's exactly what
0: happened. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what happens in the context of somebody and or an organization that's in power. They leave, they're ousted, for whatever reason, they're gone. There's a vacuum. And in that vacuum, the insurgency and or the opposition steps in right everybody's mm-hmm. fighting for this for this idea of power so as we kind of talk about this i'd like to kind of see how you went from libya to afghanistan where you know you're you're essentially covering that war you just wrote a book entitled eagle down the last special forces fighting the forever war so help us understand what that experience is all about and then we'll get into your book
1: well I wish I had a better reason for going to Afghanistan than I did. In fact, it wasn't my plan to go to Afghanistan. After uh, Libya, I wanted to continue to cover uh, the intersection between geopolitics, oil and war. As I said before, Libya was a big oil war. And so... The natural uh, place for me to go next was Iraq, because I was also covering um, the conflict there from afar, from, always from an oil perspective, because I was an energy reporter. It was Reuters that said to me, look, we don't need anybody in Iraq. Why don't you go to Afghanistan? And uh That would have been about 2012, so nearly 10 years ago. And uh, I had really uh, not looked that closely at Afghanistan since, you know, the war started out. I was in high school. It was years later. I was sort of fearful because to me, it seemed like a much, much more dangerous place than anywhere that I had been. I was afraid. My friends sort of bid me goodbye before I left on this rotation, you know, as if it would be I might not come back. Um, what I found when I was there, obviously, was completely different. The Afghan war was a lot more um, established. The Libya was chaos. It was the country had just collapsed. There was no order. There were power depended on where you were. Whereas in uh, in Kabul, especially in 2012, the, the lines were drawn, right? You knew who controlled this part, who controlled there. The Taliban were not as resurgent as they are now. And so it was a lot safer. What I did learn, I obviously read very widely before going there, um, It was a stage where all of these different powers were all trying to exert influence. At the time, you had many of the regional powers more aligned with the US than they are now. But nevertheless, you could see the way this was a stage. uh, And uh, for me, that's what made me more interested, I guess, at the start to go into it. And then the longer I spent there, the more I became... Fascinated with uh, the people, the history, uh, you know, the incredible endurance of the population that have sort of passed decades and decades of unimaginable hardship and still are welcoming, still are kind, still are hopeful.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, currently, the country's in decline. It's rapidly declining I mean, it's important to kind of note that the conflict was in those days, I think, taking place in the countryside. But now there's a full-fledged terrorist operation in Kabul that's causing people so much fear that they're not able to kind of go outside their their homes. And so the war has now made it into Kabul City. And so help us understand, you know, during your time there and during your time covering Afghanistan, was there a major point in which the country started to deteriorate? What are the aspects that are kind of causing this to happen? What's some daylight that you can shed on this to kind of better help us understand what's going on there?
1: I mean, from my, from my perspective as a foreign correspondent, obviously somebody very, very privileged compared to the average Afghan there. When I arrived, one of the big changes was the uh, bombing of a Lebanese restaurant, the Taberna restaurant. A lot of my colleagues had been in Afghanistan for several years. So for them, this was a huge shift because the attack ended up killing about uh, 22 people, some very senior people, including the chief of political affairs at the United Nations. Um, It was very dramatic. We were in the area that was cordoned off uh, right by the restaurant when when it blew up. We were waiting for one of the people that was in the restaurant to come join us that night. And so we all lost um, a close friend in that attack. And I think that was when I suppose the war really kind of came home to the expats who lived in this sort of secluded bubble. But because I was relatively new then, I'd only been in the country six months, that was really all I knew. Because there was such a rapid drawdown of U.S. forces when I was there. Everyone was preparing for the U.S. to leave. So I arrived at the point when I guess all of the expats were already talking about how, um, you know, things were deteriorating. So my experience pretty much was a steady deterioration from then. It's hard to say at what point uh, things really got bad. I mean, every year, I suppose, they got worse. In my last year in 2017, there was, of course, the devastating truck bomb right outside the German embassy that ended up... Killing well over a hundred Afghans, uh, ordinary civilians going about their daily lives. Hundreds and hundreds of people wounded. The bomb, because our office was located near the embassy, uh, it partly destroyed our office too. We had a staff member wounded. Um, we were lucky that our driver had been a nurse in a past life and patched him up mm-hmm. because we wouldn't have been able to take them to hospital. And. Um, That was a very, I suppose, personal experience of the way things were deteriorating. Um, And it continues. You know, I speak to Afghan friends now and journalists and everyone is living in fear because of the targeted killings. And um, I would say it's just hard to sort of say one point for me, it's just been a kind of steady trajectory downwards. the one point where I have felt slightly hopeful and that's probably because I'm now removed um, is the uh, start of peace talks between the Afghan side and the Taliban side. I was lucky to be able to go to Doha a couple mm-hmm. of times and it seemed to me that there was genuine hope amongst the young negotiators that mm-hmm. this was a chance to uh, write a new future. Now, I know that's a very sort of distant flicker of hope, but that was something that there wasn't around at my time. It just seemed to be an endless, directionless um, war.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it's also important for people to just keep in mind that throughout the course of human history, there's been many wars. Every war comes to an end. Every war that we've ever written about and or heard about and or participated in, whatever country you may be coming from, has always ended. Mm-hmm. So there will come a point whereby this war in Afghanistan and all the parties involved will come to the table and say, we're, we're actually sick of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so wars do come to an end. Now, specifically in terms of your book, help us understand how you got tasked with following the Special Forces and what that experience was like and kind of what surfaces as you kind of think about it right now?
1: I uh, never really expected to write a book, but when I was there, one of the most frustrating things as a journalist was being unable to really effectively cover what the U.S. military was doing. We knew that cities would fall. Uh, The first one was Kunduz uh, in 2015, spectacularly. But like Kunduz, there were many, many other similar scenarios in smaller places or other places that didn't get reported, where U.S. special operations would go in with commandos and win the city back or the village back or whatever it was, or prevent a collapse. And that was very difficult to cover because the U.S. Uh, military no longer had journalists embed. In the early years of the war, journalists would be invited to spend, you know, weeks with soldiers and uh, impartially or however they felt like, you know, report on what was going on. That was not available at the time. Our way to do it was we would try and find out which Afghan commanders were embedded, were working alongside Green Berets that were involved in in these battles. And we embedded with them and we tried to find out what was going on. But it was very difficult to get a picture. And so it was really a sort of small steps as I got to know a few Green Berets and talked to them about their experience. Um, I learned more, met others, and it became a sort of critical mass where I convinced them to let me put the stories into a book that would explain what the U.S. has been doing basically since 2015, when uh, when most troops pulled out and the White House started to talk about the war being over and started calling it a training mission and other things to make it seem like there was no longer uh, no longer a war going on.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So what did you learn? What did you learn about what the United States was doing as an operational matter in Afghanistan with the Special Forces?
1: There was a very set format. Uh, you know, uh, a place would be in trouble. There would be different ways that it would be reported. You know, maybe the Afghan government, a uh, governor, or someone in the military chain of command would say, this place is in danger, Uh, we're going to send Afghans with this commando unit to go and save this place. And the US would say, okay, we will send this ODA, which is a team of Green Berets along with them to provide support to help them plan the operation critically to deliver air support. And that has basically kept the country under government control when we talk about district centers, villages, being under government control, that is because of the work that U.S. special operations have been doing alongside the Afghan commandos. I mean, it, the one thing about the book is that it tells the story from the perspective of the Americans. But you could argue that the real, uh, the real story there are the Afghan commandos that are there year in, year out, working with different uh, groups of Green Berets coming in and out, uh, and they're the ones that are always on the front line doing this. Um, but for a couple of reasons, one being that I am a Westerner and therefore it's easier for me to tell the story of from an American point of view. I don't speak Dari or Pashto to any point where I could effectively tell the Afghan uh, story Uh, And second, um, unfortunately, I felt that the uh, American uh, public policymakers would care more if the story was told from the perspective of the American soldiers there, because unfortunately, it seems that when an Afghan life is lost, it doesn't matter as much as when a US life is lost. And you see that, for example, on twitter when the uh, when uh secretary pompeo tweeted you know no american lives lost since the february deal thousands and thousands of afghan lives have been lost since then but that often doesn't get counted because americans understandably are looking out for american interests and so that's how the book came to be
0: Mm -hmm. i have so many things going on in my mind right now because i was i was personally a combat interpreter embedded with the marines and the commandos and I was in Afghanistan for three years total. And so I'm thinking about those commandos and, you know, people don't really understand when we talk about the Afghan National Security Forces, everything is part of the Afghan National Security Forces to include the police, to include the army. But the saving grace for the Afghan government is the commandos. I mean, they're highly trained. They're highly technical. They're exceptionally good at their jobs. But the only problem is there's so few of them. And so they're always being utilized. And so there's a high burnout, right? You can't put commandos everywhere all the time, right? And so that is the problem that the Afghan government has to face. How is it that they are going to increase the size of the Afghan commandos such that they can continue stomping out these places where the insurgency is developing and or increasing?
1: The challenge is, uh keeping enough having maintaining the level that they have and the level of training that they have you do have a big attrition problem that was apparent when i was embedding with them three years ago i imagine it's even worse now and the afghan commanders that we did embed with were generally incredible people who had lived through unimaginable amount of conflict and uh, been wounded many times suffered all kinds of of experiences and uh they had trained for a long time and you can't make an Afghan commando in two months. It takes a long time. And with fewer and fewer American advisors, there is less expertise from the outside to help lead them as well, help train them up with um the expertise of a of a of, of a more developed army. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that they are lacking is air support. They don't have the air support or the intelligence uh, resources that the much wealthier American side has. And so that's Mm -hmm. going to be another problem.
0: And as somebody who's intimately spent a lot of time understanding the security situation and or the lack of the security situation, how do you kind of foresee Afghanistan playing out? How do you kind of see where the country's going and, the United States' involvement in the country?
1: I mean, nobody wants to make predictions about Afghanistan, right? Um, Every year is the decisive year. It's been that way since I was there 10 years ago. And there's always a good reason for it being a decisive year. I think what we can see from the hints that we've got from the Biden administration so far is that they do want to uh, explore the possibility of keeping troops in Afghanistan beyond the May deal. I think there is a general agreement in Washington that withdrawing troops by May would collapse the peace deal and lead to more violence, potential civil war, which nobody wants to see. The question is, how many troops and will they be able to make an argument to the Taliban that they can extend the troop presence without violating the terms of the deal? I think that there is a lot of criticism about the peace deal, but even its worst critics would agree that the deal does offer uh, some kind of hope because both sides are genuinely participating, genuinely recognizing each other. And that is a place which a couple of years ago was unimaginable. So it's not all bad. I think, obviously, as with any peace negotiation after a very long conflict, you cannot expect it to reach uh, a settlement in you know months maybe even years and so i think there's a lot of variables along the way
0: i think that's right and i think it's important for listeners and people who understand the conflict peripherally to realize that you know the first condition that the taliban has for the afghan government and for the united states is that it doesn't want any foreign troops in afghanistan that is their first condition and also it's important to kind of understand that People have come to the table, but they haven't even defined terms yet. Like the Taliban and the Afghan government haven't defined how they want to go forward in terms of even naming the country. Is it an emirate? Is it a republic? They're not even at the table yet to talk about what exactly human rights are, right? So it's in the infancy of these conversations where they're starting to actually just come to the table and say, okay, we acknowledge that you are the Afghan government. We acknowledge that you are the leadership of the Taliban. And the next step is to acknowledge and or understand and define these terms, which hasn't happened yet. So it's a long process.
1: It is a long it is a long process. But I think the fact that they're still at the table, it started in September, and the talks are still going on, uh, that is a positive sign. They did work through one roadblock uh, late last year about uh, resolving disputes. They did work through that. Each side has a different interpretation of who won or who lost that particular battle, but they're moving forward very, very slowly, but they're moving forward. And I think as long as they're all at the table, uh, that's something that everybody just has to hope for, because otherwise, there is no hope of the conflict ending. It's it's the only way.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And I'd like to ask you this question that, you know, I, I like to talk to others who have been raised in the West or places where conflict is not the norm. There are many people that I've spoken to that love Afghanistan. There's no in-between. If you ever ask people, you know, what is it they love? Do they do they enjoy their time in Afghanistan, even with the conflict raging? It's either, yes, I love the country, or no, I absolutely don't. There's no middle ground. And so if somebody who's been there, spent a lot of time there, how do you kind of feel about the country and 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 then help us understand why
1: i think that in afghanistan like with the conflict in libya you know war tends to bring out the absolute best and the absolute worst in people and in afghanistan i lived through some of the darkest moments of my life perhaps and also I witnessed human strength and potential that I never imagined possible. And so when I look at Afghanistan, I always see it in that in that lens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think that the Afghan people have been misrepresented a lot in the media. There's always a tendency to oversimplify the population. Like any country, there's a wide diversity of people, a wide diversity of views. One of the common misconceptions is that the Taliban are this uh, outside force and that Taliban beliefs are totally foreign to the rest of the Afghan population. That's just not true. They are Afghans. A lot of their views are shared by Afghans. But the same stretch, you do have Afghans that are very westernized in their views that have values that much more mirror uh, western values and so i think that we generally overlook the complexity of the population i mean I, I hope that one day i could go back to afghanistan as as a visitor to see old friends uh, and not go there for work
0: yeah i really like that nuanced kind of perspective the thing that really surfaces for me as i think about places of conflict Afghanistan, because it's deeply personal to me, is that Afghanistan and places like it strip you down to your emotional core. If you feel love in a place like Afghanistan, you feel it exponentially. Same as fear, same as guilt, same as humiliation. There's this fundamental stripping down of emotions when you're in a place that's deeply chaotic because your life is on the line and you're always dealing with self-preservation. It accentuates who you are in that space and all the emotions that you may feel. There are these moments in life that are captured in that environment that just are completely stripped of any confusion of what that emotion is. It's very apparent and it's it's heightened exponentially. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think that's why a lot of people, especially soldiers who may have not spent uh, such a long time in Afghanistan, maybe one or two tours, will still remember it in disproportionate size compared to other experiences that they've had in their life. And it's something that, you know, losing a buddy, not doing enough to save somebody, you know, that can really hang over people for a long Mm -hmm. time, the things that they did or didn't do. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So I want to be respectful of your time, Jessica. And the one question I like to ask all my guests as we kind of wrap up here is, what would be your message for the world?
1: I think that my message would be try hard to understand people with views that are different to yours. Try and just develop a better understanding of others. I think that is something that holds true for, for everywhere. I mean, I'm obviously not American, but even in the US, you know, people are extremely divided between the left and the right. And this debate is getting worse. It seems like the internet uh, makes it worse instead of making it better. And I think that people have humanity in common, and that it would be better if everybody stopped to try and see what they shared rather than uh, didn't.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And that's completely applicable to People's lives here and abroad. So thank you for that. Jessica, thank you for the work that you do and continue to be the light in the darkness.
1: Thank you very much for having me on.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi, digital marketing by Catherine Ahn, artwork by Mashita Hadi and theme music by Qais Esar. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.